following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. So we're going to do that. We're going to learn from the Lord as we turn to um, Acts chapter 19 for the second in our series, Acts 19, 1 to 22. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took some disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Over to Ed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that is powerful because it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, please help us to know uh, him all the more and to put our trust and confidence in him this evening. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, here's, here's a question for us to begin with. You see it on the handout. How powerful is the gospel? How powerful is the gospel? I guess we know what the right answer to that is, but it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, the coronation last week, uh, 
hard to believe it was uh, only a week ago, uh, but it was. And that uh, coronation service was full of Christian truth, wasn't it? And yet, as I was reading this past week, one writer was describing it really in the form of sort of some old ancient traditions, ancient set of beliefs that sort of nice to have in ceremony, but no one really believes that stuff today, do they? Uh, it's sort of the time of the King James Bible, which is why it's entirely appropriate, it feels, uh, often, to read those readings in the King James uh, Version. It just feels of something of the past, uh, something archaic. And many in our society view the Christian faith to be a little bit like that. Uh, we're in a very secular world, increasingly so. The census figures you'd be familiar with, some of you, I think. 2021, 46% say that they're Christians. Um, down from 59% in 2011. Uh, it's pretty clear what direction, as a society, uh, we seem to be heading in. And it might be that you know friends, you know family who are not yet Christians. And it just feels, how is the gospel going to penetrate? It just keeps sort of bouncing off. You sort of think, why don't they get it? Why don't they understand uh, this good news? Maybe just thinking about St. Mary's University. I mean, wonderful to hear of uh, the Lord's work in Grace's life this year. But as we think about the whole university, what, 5,000 students, something like that? Um, And yet, very, very few Christians. Why why isn't the gospel exploding? And how will the gospel, how will the CU explode next year? And maybe even in our own life, we sort of think, why is the gospel not having a a bigger impact upon me and my life. I think this passage is largely written to remind us where power lies. Where power lies. And uh, we're going to think about this um, uh, as we go through this story, which feels pretty eclectic. Um, You can... Some stuff here sort of, you think, gosh, I didn't realize that was in the Bible, uh, if you hadn't read it uh, before. Um, But I think the big thing that holds it together is a reminder of where power really lies, and therefore where the power of the gospel is. Uh, Quick note on context, uh, and that is to say a few things just about Ephesus. Ephesus is a really important city for us to realize. Uh, This is where all the action is taking place here in Acts chapter 19. And uh, if you can see the map, um, look very closely at that map. Right in the middle, you'll see Ephesus. It's on the coast of the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Back then, in the time Paul's here, sort of 52 to 55 AD, uh, it's a city of about a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people. Uh, It is a really significant city. It's quite a crossroads. Lots of people coming and going, uh, doing trade there, going down to the port, that sort of stuff. Uh, There was quite a large Jewish population in the city. Um, But as a city, life was full of superstition. Uh, Life was full of magic. And the occult was pretty big there. And at the center of Ephesian life was the goddess Artemis. And uh, what I've shown you a picture of on the right is a, a, of um, her temple. Uh, this is actually a repeated, um, this is, 
I believe, somewhere else in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, they sort of rebuilt what they thought the temple um, of Artemis looked like. And uh, so there was a temple a bit like this in Ephesus, and it was right at the centre of life there. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, so uh, a great source of civic pride and, and a big deal. Now, all that stuff is actually really important for us to understand as we sort of see the story of Paul in Ephesus. He spent over two years, two to three years uh, there. And what we see is the impact his ministry had on this city. We might think, how on earth is uh, the gospel going to have an impact upon this city? Uh, So let's have a look at at what happened. And the first is we're going to see the impact of the gospel on those who were on their way, but not fully there. On their way, but not fully there. So let me read again from verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Uh, So here we go, these these 12 or so men. uh, What they seem to be is disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, Do you remember, if you were here last week, we saw that Apollos knew the baptism of John the Baptist. But what's striking about these people, they knew, knew even less than Apollos. Now, it's hard to know exactly what they did know. Uh, One very plausible idea of these people is that actually they were in Palestine during the ministry of John the Baptist, and they left Palestine to head off to uh, Ephesus and missed out on the whole ministry and life of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. So they kind of got John the Baptist stuff, but they haven't caught up with how it played out and with Jesus himself. Uh, In other words, they're sort of a little bit like, uh, in some ways, Old Testament believers. Um, And um, they need to hear specifically about Jesus. So they're on their way, but they're not fully there in one sense. And the arrival of Paul is a bit like a catch-up. Let me tell you what's been going on. Uh, Let me tell you about Jesus. I don't know if you saw... In the news this week, uh, this postcard that arrived in a school in Shropshire, um, uh, there it is, that postcard was sent, that's the head uh, teacher of the school in Shropshire, and this is a postcard sent to this boarding school in 1957, and it arrived just a few days ago. Uh, I know post is bad, but 66 years, uh, that is taking some time. Miss D. Kerr was the receiver, Um, slightly disappointed when you actually read what's on the postcard, which is uh, the other side. Uh, it's just about uh, daddy going fishing and catching no fish. Uh, there you go. That was the news. That was t- 66 years to arrive uh, for someone who had long left the school. Um, but in a sense, what is happening here? That's sort of news taking a long time to catch up. There is a sense in which news takes a bit of time to catch up with these 12 men in Ephesus. Uh, let's get rid of that. Everyone's reading the postcards trying to work out what uh, it's actually saying. Um, so the news is catching up, 
And uh, they're hearing now about the person who John the Baptist was talking about, Jesus Christ. And Paul's able to explain about his life and about his death. And that is how uh, we're forgiven. And about his life and his resurrection. And he's ascended and he's sent his Holy Spirit. Uh, And that we're called to be baptized in uh, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you can imagine these people, they hear it and say, brilliant, yes, I'm all in. And so they're baptized. And as Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, you think, what on earth is going on there? What do we make of that? Because this text is actually one of the main texts uh, that those who might um, have a view of sometimes called second, the second blessing, uh, uh, much Pentecostal theology is based around the idea that um, uh, subsequent to conversion, uh, we can receive the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. And this is the, a text, one of the texts, uh, that many people go to. And I just want to caution against that. I don't think this text is actually uh, saying that we should expect there to be two stages in conversion. One, turning to Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit coming on uh, later on and being manifested through tongues and prophecy. That is not to say uh, that I don't think tongues and prophecy are for today, uh, because I do. Um, But it is to say uh, that I don't think this passage is teaching this idea of a sort of a a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. One thing to say on that is uh, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, Just because it's narrating what happened doesn't mean to say that is the normal pattern of things. We need to do a little bit more work to know what is the normal pattern. Uh, The second thing to say is this was a particularly unusual time. This is a time where we're really moving from Old Testament to New Testament times. And uh, what I think is happening here is this transition from Old Testament uh, faith to New Testament faith, if I can put it that way. Uh, In other words, faith directly in the Lord Jesus Christ who has appeared, the Messiah has come. And so really what's happening here is Pentecost is sort of being rolled out. This is a mini Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost, someone wrote, has caught up on these 12 men here. Uh, And what I think we see both in this passage and actually elsewhere in Acts is what are the authentic marks of a Christian? What is it? Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian? And uh, rather than necessarily speaking in tongues and prophecy, some will speak in tongues, some won't. Uh, Some will prophesy, some won't, I think the rest of the Bible says. But what we can see are things that are true for all those who put their faith in Christ should be that we are repentant, and we can see that's the case here, that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, secondly, Third, that we're baptized. Uh, We're called this uh, being obedient. Uh, That doesn't mean you have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. And fourth, uh, when we become a Christian, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All Christians, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we will have the Holy Spirit. Uh, So that's a little little segue. But just to explain there how uh, the gospel had this big impact. The good news of Jesus had this big impact on these 12 men who are on their way, but not fully there. But when they heard about Jesus, they said, look, I'm all in.
Then, what's going on next in this passage? Uh, in verses 8 to 10, we see a little bit about Paul's method. Uh, we just step out a little bit and see what he gets up to. Uh, it's quite instructive to see, actually. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Paul often started in a synagogue, and here he is starting in a synagogue. It's not easy. He's arguing from the Old Testament that it's all about uh, Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah. Uh, some are persuaded. Others, we're told, seem to be obstinate. Verse 9, some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, so Paul left the synagogue after three months, and then he hired out this lecture hall, uh, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, Tyrannus actually means tyrant. Uh, so there's this guy who's sort of nicknamed the tyrant. Uh, maybe you can think of one or two teachers like that. I don't know. Uh, but Paul is a very different teacher. He's there for two years telling people about Jesus. And it has a huge impact uh, it is, seems to be a very good strategy. Uh, it looks like, verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And I love these little details because they just tell us a little bit about Paul's method. Speaking about Jesus, and he is quite strategic. It's not wrong to be strategic, to set yourself up in a good place so as many people can hear the message of Jesus as possible. Uh, Ephesus was a great place. It was a crossroads. People were coming and going. It's actually genuinely realistic that this message would have gone out to the whole area in this province. Uh, Asia is the particular province. You can actually see it on your map, uh, the area. Uh, the gospel went out. We see a little bit more of Paul's strategy uh, in verses 21 to 22 where he talks about his plans for his next visits. Uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to go by Macedonia and Achaia. That's the southern tip of modern Greece. Uh, And then on to Rome. Uh, So Paul was a real strategist. He was a real visionary as well. Uh, It's good to have vision. It's good to have strategy. Uh, It's in the Lord's hands, uh, but we entrust uh, plans to him. And actually, it seems uh, that a lot of churches were established during this time. The seven churches of Revelation at the beginning of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, they were probably established during this time. Uh, the church uh, uh, in Colossae uh, was established during this time, and Hierapolis. Uh, so, um, good strategy from Paul. Okay, uh, let's come back to thinking about the impact of the gospel on those who are on their way and not fully there, and then on those who are steeped in superstition, magic, and occult practices. Okay, this... Uh, we sort of think, what on earth is going on here? Um, we can think, fine, Paul is successful. The gospel has an impact on those who are almost there. I can understand that. But what about those committed to a very different worldview? And let's see what happens. Uh, it is quite a remarkable power encounter, really. Uh, the first thing we see are extraordinary miracles. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Uh, It's worth recognizing. Uh, Luke writing Acts here, he he recognizes that even by miracle standards, these are extraordinary. These are extraordinary miracles. Uh, That objects, uh, that props, as it were, are used by God to bring 
healing to people. Uh, the handkerchief, the aprons that probably Paul wore as he made his tents. Uh, this is not normal. I mean, there are precedent of this. Don't rem- do you remember the woman who was healed by touching Jesus' uh, clothes? Uh, those who are healed by even uh, being in Peter's shadow in Acts chapter 5. And really, this is a demonstration of Jesus' astonishing power. Uh, and through this, authenticating, affirming Paul's message. What it's not is magic. And that is what I think uh, the next few verses help us see. Uh, these seven sons of Sceva. Uh, let's read about this. So verse 13. Some Jews who went about driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is in the Bible. Uh, You think, gosh, that's a pretty unusual uh, sort of event. Uh, What's going on here? Well, remember the nature of Ephesus is a place where all sorts of magic and occult practices were carried out. And uh, what seems to be going on here, these seven sons of Sceva, uh, who titled himself a chief priest, probably more of a pagan priest. Um, But what they're trying to do is classic Ephesian behavior. Uh, uh, What they did was sort of, uh, and there are lots of good archaeology, I'm told, on this, to show these sort of different spells and scrolls people came up with uh, to syncretize different things. So you might get the odd magic spell here, uh, a bit of religious ritual here, and you sort of mash it up and try and use that to um, exercise power. And here they are trying to uh, exorcise, drive out a demon from a person. And ironically, what happens is that it's not the demon that's driven out, it's these seven sons. Uh, The exorcism happens in a very different way to what they hoped. It was a spectacular fail. It didn't work. Uh, And in fact, we have a reverse exorcism. Uh, Far from driving out an evil spirit, the evil spirit drives them out. Why? What's going on? What's the point of this in the Bible? Well, I think it's saying Christianity is not about magic. It's not about saying the right words in the right order. It is not like casting a magic spell. Uh, You can't just say things completely detached from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because power rests not, not in words or in a spell or in a formula. Power rests in a person. Power rests in Jesus Christ himself. And that is why Paul's method is not actually, because it's striking here, Paul is slightly absent from verses 11 through to 16. There's no uh, mention of Paul being present at this time. What Paul is getting on with is speaking about Jesus, because it's in him where the power lies. That's what he's all about. He keeps preaching, proclaiming, persuading people about Jesus. And it's that that had an enormously powerful effect. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear 
And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So we see here, through Paul's preaching, proclaiming, speaking about Jesus, and through the failure of people like the seven sons of Sceva, what we see is that Jesus' name is honoured, and we see those who come to trust in him come to a, a deep repentance, an open, a public confession, and a, a costly repentance. Uh, that number, 50,000 drachmas, probably doesn't really mean very much to us. To us. That is the equivalent of 135 years' wages. Um, depending on inflation, about $6 million just gone up in a bonfire because people had come to trust in Christ. I mean, that is a remarkable example of costly confession, isn't it? Of costly repentance. But if Jesus is who he says he is, who Paul says he is, if he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, if through him we find forgiveness and life, if he is the one who made the world and through him the world is remade, the all-powerful one, then we would give up everything for him, wouldn't we? And it's a great example for us that to follow him, it is worth paying the cost. And maybe there are things that we need to give up, as it were, to chuck into the bonfire. Maybe bridges we need to burn because we want to follow him wholeheartedly. There is a cost to following Christ. It impacts our time. It can impact our reputation. It can impact our ambitions. It impacts things we want to do. We have to give up things that we would love to do in order to follow him, to make him Lord of our lives. But it's worth it. Uh, these people here, they knew it was worth burning these scrolls so they didn't follow wrong practices. Rather, they followed the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the source of all life. So as we close, what about, think about that in our own lives. Are there things we need to, as it were, put onto a bonfire? Things that we need to burn up in order to follow him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Because he is the all-powerful one. And it is him and the word about him, about Jesus, that has the power to change the world and has changed the world. I love the way it's put there in verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It's like a wave. If you were here last week, we talked about how Acts is a bit like a stone landing in the middle of a flat, still pond, and the ripples go out. And what is going on here is as, as these ripples go out, they grow in power. The wave builds momentum. And the power is found in a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's um, turn to him now. We'll have a moment of quiet and maybe the band come up and uh, 
we'll be able to respond in song in just a few moments' time. Uh, But for now, uh, let's come before the Lord. Know where true power lies. Take great encouragement in that. Where we want to see change, let's look to Christ. Let's point to Christ. Knowing that the power is in him, not in us. And let's also take this moment that there are particular things that we want to bring before him in repentance and faith. Things we want to put on the bonfire, as it were. Let's do that now together as well. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you now and um, acknowledge some of those things that we desperately uh, try to hold on to, but know we need to give up, to give over to you, to follow you. Uh, Lord, please help us to do that. Perhaps help us to speak about it with uh, someone else, a friend, uh, someone uh, in this church family, to uh, bring before um, you those things that we want to say are, are... are not worth keeping so that we can come to you, so that we can give our lives wholeheartedly to you. Because you are the all-powerful one. And Lord, forgive us where we've put our trust, put our confidence in methods or in um, uh, different ways of um, trying to bring about change or Uh, bring people um, to our way of thinking. Help us to put our trust entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the all-powerful one, knowing that him and through his spirit, you bring about the change. Lord, help us to trust in him, in his perfect timing, in his way of doing things, and have great confidence in that great encouragement in that. So Lord, we commit ourselves to your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.